wouldn't the, this life be so much easier if God just showed up and told us specifically what He wanted from us? If instead of me standing in front of you, God Himself stood here and said, here is exactly what I want. Wouldn't it be so much better? We have this desire to be with God, to know Him and please Him by doing what He tells us to do. But man, this life is so confusing sometimes. I didn't expect this thrown my way. I didn't know that could happen. What is the right path? What is truth? What do you want me to do, God? Man, this would be a lot easier if He just stood here and told us, walked with us. Then, then we could be confident that God, we know what God wants from us. That He is real. But is that really true? Would you really be more confident if God Himself were standing here speaking to you? Would you be more confident with a vision? Well, let me tell you about a couple of guys who did have visions. And it made them really confident. In the year 610, an Arabian man became really frustrated with the state of religion among his people. So many people had different ideas of what was the right religious path. And becoming frustrated with this, he began to retreat from his city out to a cave near Mecca where he would pray, asking for clarity and understanding. Show me. God or gods or whoever you are. What's the right path? Then suddenly an angel appeared to him and he was amazed and terrified. And over a course of many meetings, this angel revealed to him the words that he wanted him to share with the world. It was after multiple meetings that he finally had his message. But he didn't write it down. Instead, he waited a while and he immediately went and told friends, here's what I, this new religion, here's the right path. And it wasn't until after he died that they compiled what he had written or spoken. Of course, they fought over it because this guy thought he said this and this guy thought he said that. Eventually, one guy won out and what we have today known as the Quran came from those fights and that private revelation. So the whole religion of Islam started with one guy and his personal revelation, this fearful vision all by himself. He convinced a bunch of people that he's the true prophet and there to conquer the world with his private revelation. Well, a thousand or so years later, in 1820, confused by the claims of all the different denominations, a young 15-year-old boy named Joseph was going out into the woods to pray in upstate New York, saying, God, help me understand what's the right path. And suddenly an angel appeared before him and told him, I have the right path for you. Here's some golden tablets, some golden plates that have some strange writing, and you're going to translate them. And so he quickly had this miraculous experience of translating the golden tablets into what we know as the Book of Mormon. And he quickly buried those tablets. Nobody's seen them. Nobody knew his revelation. And he convinced everyone to start a new religion because he was the, the true prophet who has this private revelation from God that we are all to listen to. So who are we to believe? One of these two guys or many of the thousands who claimed visions throughout history? What's the right path? God, what do you want from us? There's so many different choices. How do I know which is right? They can't all be right. Are we really sure we want a vision? Our text for today gives us a key 
to the understand, to understand truth without a vision, something much more reliable than a vision. But before we go get that answer, we need to pray and ask God to guide us in His truth. Let's pray. Oh God, we need You. We admit we are blind. We are foolish. In our sin, we would twist any vision to suit our own purposes. And so we need You to show up and open our eyes and correct our sinful hearts and help us understand the truth, ancient truth, these words which we stand upon, full of Your promises. God, You promised to guide Your people by Your Spirit to gain understanding. Give that to us now, please. Amen. So in our text for today, in Matthew chapter 17, we see at the beginning that Jesus has brought three of His disciples high up on a mountain to give them the vision that their hearts, they think, need. Peter, James, and John walk with Jesus and they see something spectacular. For the first time, they see Jesus as He was before He condescended, emptied Himself, and became a man. All of His glory. And since then, He's now in heaven as we know Him, reigning from the throne room of God. They saw Him in all of His glory. The entire book of Matthew has been this slow process, step by step, revealing to the disciples who Jesus truly is. And this is the culmination of that for them. We're told up front as we open the book of Matthew, Jesus is the King of Israel, the Son of God. We've kind of got this prologue, so we've got the benefit of hindsight to say, well, man, these guys are stupid. They sure don't understand what's going on. But they just witnessed Him day after day, teaching with authority and wisdom they've never seen before, commanding creation as though He is the one who created it all, healing people, casting out demons, People started to catch on a little bit. The Pharisees had an idea of what he was claiming for himself, which is why they got so upset. They wanted to kill him and get rid of Jesus. They might lose their own power that they've built for themselves. But the disciples are starting to figure it out too. They have some ideas of what the Messiah should be, and he's claiming all these things. Certainly, he's the guy. They expected a political conqueror. He's going to come and lead a revolution. Let's go, troops. And Peter was so confident in this. He said, in chapter 16, he claims, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. I'm going to go to war for you. Let's go. I will fight to my death to keep you alive. Of course, Jesus had affirmed, had to affirm that, yes, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, but you've got it all wrong. He had to rebuke him when he tried to start the revolution. Jesus is teaching, no, the way to glory is through suffering. The kingdom will come from giving up all of your desires. Jake taught us last week, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus. Be willing to die for Him. Go to your death. Give up all your dreams, all your desires and preferences. And so now the disciples are left going, what in the world is happening? This doesn't fit any of our notions of the Messiah. Jesus, help us out. How can the long-awaited Messiah die? We've been waiting thousands of years for you. You're supposed to be the most powerful man who ever lived. The wisest guy in all of history. 
God promised the Messiah, the son of David, the king of Israel, would reign on his throne forever. So how can he die? This doesn't make any sense. Jesus, give us understanding. Give us a vision. And so that's just what Jesus offers in this text today. A clearer picture of his identity and his plan. And so our main idea for this, from this text, our call today is to behold a more compelling vision of Christ. Behold a more compelling vision of Christ. We'll first, we'll look at that vision in verses one through eight and see how spectacular it is. Try to understand what's going on. But then when we turn to verses nine through thirteen, we're going to realize that that vision is not enough. There, we will be given a much more compelling basis for our faith to guide us through every doubt. So with that in mind, let's turn back and look at the text. Matthew 17, starting in verse 1. And understand this spectacular vision of God. After six days, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John His brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This has been a a rather heavy week for me as a pastor. It's been super busy. I've had lots of highs and lows, ups and downs. Over the last couple weeks, I've met with many of you in counseling or welcoming new babies into this world, hearing your your desires to be on mission and start ministries. And We're working together to try to figure out how to do that and what we can do to empower you and equip you. We've had to wrestle through the budget and and some concepts of who or what an elder is. And all of this laid before me leaves me feeling quite overwhelmed. I see this great task to shepherd your souls. And I feel, how can, I can't even shepherd my own soul. Who am I? What can I do? God, please, just would you come and walk with me through all of this? Give me a vision for what you want with Redemption City Church. All of us at times feel like we need clarity. We want understanding. Why would God allow the suffering in my life? Why do I have to feel so alone all the time? Why doesn't He make my decision more clear? Why doesn't He show Himself to me? It would be a lot easier to know He was real if He were right there, if I could touch Him, or if He just gave me a vision. But is that really what we want? Would we really respond correctly to such a vision? Look at this vision that Peter, James, and John had. Notice the scenery, what's happening in verses 1 and 2 and 5 tells us there's these clouds, heavy clouds, bright lights, loud sounds. It's like this terrible storm has just rolled in. 
but it's coming right at them. But it's so beautiful, they can't take their eyes off it. Whenever I used to read this text, I always imagined that as soon as Jesus became transfigured, that it was an immediate serene scene that happened. All the chaos of life just melted away and it was peace. There was calming lights and a gentle breeze and the sweet melodies of singing birds. And there's Jesus with His peaceful, happy face smiling at them. But if we look back throughout the Bible at this scenery of clouds and lights and sounds, we find it's much more terrible than that. It's always associated with the presence of God in all of His power and authority. So you see the pillar of cloud and fire that kept Egypt at bay while Israel escaped through the Red Sea. We see Moses on the mountain surrounded by this cloud and there's thundering so powerful that the mountain shakes and all of Israel steps back ten yards say, don't even touch that mountain. Think of Solomon when he dedicated the temple and they offered their first sacrifices. The cloud rushed down and filled the temple with bright light. Or Ezekiel and Isaiah had these visions into the throne room of God and they were afraid. In every case, people were terrified because they thought their lives were in danger. So they stood before God in His perfect holiness. This is what's going on in this vision. This is serious. God is here with them. The disciples should be consumed instantly by His holiness while they're in their sin. But they aren't. Instead, we see these three characters. Moses and Elijah and Jesus. What's, what's going on here? We, we see, we know Jesus should be there. He's the Messiah. He's the King. Who, where, why are Moses and Elijah here? Peter gets so excited in verse 4. This is awesome, guys. Let's build some tents. I don't know who expresses their excitement by building tents, but he wanted to do that. And, and it shows that in the midst of this great and powerful vision, he still has no clue what's going on. He remembers Moses and Elijah as the two great prophets of the Old Testament that kind of ushered in these major sections of the Bible. Moses, the prophet that brings the law. And Elijah, the one who introduces a series of prophets who hold all these kings accountable to that law. Both of them have this reputation as the deathless ones. They're, the end of their lives were kind of shrouded in mystery. Did they really die? Where, where did they go? And their ministry still has influence generation after generation. And so, now here they are with this great new prophet, Jesus. The three of them standing together, ready to take this army into battle. Who can stop the revolution with Moses and Elijah and Jesus all together? So let's build some tents. Well, the tents are reminders of Israel's time in the wilderness. They had this feast of booths where they would always live in these tents and remember remember when we had no home. But God traveled with us through the wilderness and this great pillar of cloud led us through, provided for us, protected us from all of our enemies. And here's Peter going, I got Moses, I got Elijah, I got Jesus, I got the pillar of fire and cloud. Victory is on its way. 
But even in this vision, he still doesn't understand what's happening. He can't see clearly. And the voice interrupts all of his rambling in verse 5 and tells him, stop talking, listen. You don't know what you're talking about. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And now Peter is struck with terror. The disciples fall down on their faces. Now they realize what's going on. But why now? Why not before when they saw all of this spectacular vision? Because now they're beginning to realize that God isn't just out there in a cloud, out there protecting them from those other enemies. He's right here in front of me. Jesus Himself is God. He's got more authority than they ever understood. To be God's Son is to share in His divine nature. Just as your father was human, so you are human. In the same way, just as his father was God, so he is God. We've seen this display of God's pleasure in His Son in Psalm 2, back in Matthew chapter 3. Every time we're supposed to know this one with God's pleasure has divine authority. And this last command hammers it home. Listen to Him. You could translate it kind of strangely. Hear Him. Hear and obey. Don't just let the words go in your ears, but respond to them. Hear, O disciples, Jesus is God. Israel's heard something like that before on another mountain. As they're about to enter into the promised land, Moses said, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God is the one God. Yahweh is one. This is what Moses said to them as they were going into the promised land. Here's your new land, but don't forget Jesus is or God, Yahweh. He is your king. Listen to Yahweh. Follow His commands. Obey Him. Do not forget Him. And now here we are on this mount of transfiguration. Moses and Elijah fade into the background, no longer visible. Their ministry, Jesus said, in other places, Luke 24, John 5, was to point to Him. All of the Old Testament Scriptures were written to get us to Christ. And now that the Messiah is here, these old prophets surrender to His authority. They fade into the background saying, Jesus, the God-King, is here. And recognizing this great chasm between the holy judge standing right before them and their sinfulness, their foolishness, they fall on their faces terrified that Jesus is going to bring immediate judgment on them. But in this terrible vision, the disciples are spared. They get to live. God is merciful to them because right before them, the great judge is also their mediator. The one who will go before them and protect them. Jesus alone is the one mediator between man and God. And He shows His care for them and He picks them up off their faces. He says, you don't need to fear any longer. I'm here with you. I'm on your side. This is the vision that we all want, right? This would be so clarifying for all of us if we could see Jesus in all of His spectacular glory. Now I know He's God. Now I know what He wants me to do. Obey His commands. Do whatever He tells me. Please. Still don't get it. There's something more they need to know. 
this vision is not enough. So let's turn back to verse 9 and see the more compelling basis for our faith. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision. Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked Him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things, but I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they didn't recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So they see this great and powerful vision for the first time. They finally understand who Jesus is. In His full glory, God, the King of Israel, is here. And what do you think they want to do? I'm so excited. What would you do if you finally got that vision? You would run and tell everybody you could. But Jesus forcefully says, tell no one. Keep your lips shut. Don't tell a soul. What? Why? Everyone needs to know this. This is so important. Isn't that what they wanted? Isn't that what their hearts needed? Well, the following questions about Elijah continue to reveal their ignorance. Even after this vision, they're still confused about the plan of God and Jesus. They're thinking, okay, Jesus is the Messiah. We're pretty sure of that. But the book of Malachi foretold that the Messiah would be would have a forerunner. Elijah was supposed to come back and prepare the way of the Lord. And so, if Jesus is here, where's Elijah? Never mind, they just saw him, right? He was just there in front of them. But Jesus says, well, Elijah has come, guys. John the Baptist had every power, every bit of power and authority that Elijah did. He spoke the words that were foretold about the coming Elijah. He was it. He was preparing my way. And they missed it. They rejected His message and they killed Him. And in the same way, Jesus says, they will reject Me and kill Me. Now things are starting to make sense. Verse 13 says, for the first time, instead of they lacked understanding, now they understand something. Now things are starting to come together. We often say that we would listen. We would obey more fully. We would follow with our whole hearts if God gave us a vision, if He just showed up and talked to us personally. But that just is not true. God did show up. For 30-some years, He showed up and walked and talked among the people. And they still rejected Him. They killed Him. They wanted nothing to do with Him. He was a threat to their self-rule. A threat to the pursuit of their own glory. A vision won't give any of us clarity. The only way this world will make any sense is through the lens of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what Jesus boils this all down to. He predicts His own death and resurrection, after which He says, then it will finally make sense to you. That's why Peter wrote in our call to worship. Now it made sense. He said, now I know what this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased means. After the resurrection, they will finally have a solid ground to build their faith on. Then they will have the confidence they need to face every trial. It all hinges on the death and resurrection of Jesus in our own foolishness. 
in our own sinfulness, we would twist any vision we were given into self-serving purposes, just as Muhammad and Joseph Smith did. But you might be wondering, hey, Pastor Adam, I think I remember a Sunday school lesson last week where you talked about Paul getting a vision and being converted by it. So what's the difference? Paul had his vision, went on to shape Christianity. He was its foremost messenger. He wrote most of the New Testament. And now you're telling me that he's different from Mohammed and Joseph Smith? Well, I'm so glad you brought that up. That's really helpful for what we're trying to understand here. You're right that Paul did have a vision in Acts chapter 9. Incredible. He saw Jesus in all of His glory so bright that it blinded Him. And he gave up his persecution of the church. Perhaps someone today might receive a vision and they be drawn near to Christ because of it, but it won't be enough to save them. And we certainly wouldn't thrust them into ministry because of it. After Paul's vision, he submitted everything to Peter and all of the disciples. He had to verify all of it with what Peter and the disciples were teaching. He, Before he could take up his mission, he had to check with to make sure it was in line with historical reality, with what all the Scriptures he knew taught about the Messiah. He had to verify it with all the other disciples and all of their testimonies. Paul tells us in Galatians that he spent three years in hiding. Didn't have any ministry. He spent three years running and hiding from people who were trying to kill him, having very little influence. And then after that, he spent 15 days with Peter getting a crash course in Jesus' ministry, His death and His resurrection. Especially trying to figure out how does the Law and the Prophets, Moses and Elijah, point to Jesus fulfilled in Christ. And then after that, 14 years, he followed along with the other disciples. Learning from them. Verifying their testimonies. Seeing how the Spirit was working in each of them. Only then did God push him forward into this new role as a missionary to the Gentiles. He had to go and talk to the thousands of people who walked with, talked with Jesus, touched Him after His resurrection, ate fish with Him. Did it really happen that way? Yeah, you bet it did. Okay, this guy over here, he said it happened this way. Is that true? That's exactly how it happened. Thousands of people corroborating the testimony. It wasn't His own vision that He proclaimed. At the end of all of this training, Paul had a ministry, he says, where he proclaimed nothing but Christ and Him crucified. His entire ministry was about the death and resurrection of Jesus, not this glorious vision. He said, we are a people to be most pitied if the resurrection didn't happen. So this is why Jake and I always strive in every one of our messages to get to the death and resurrection. Jesus Christ and Him crucified and raised from the dead. We're just not going to be known as preachers who are going to give you inspirational messages on how to have a better marriage, how to be better parents, how to thrive in college or have a successful career, how to survive this difficult life situation. Have you ever noticed that the Bible doesn't really emphasize those things? It doesn't focus on those things. They seem to be more tangential as they go along this path. Oh yeah, it applies here and it applies here too. But the Bible's whole message is this beeline to get us to the death and resurrection of Christ. This truth is the answer to every life question. So, 
as Jake stole my thunder in Sunday school, what should my marriage look like? Jesus died to protect His bride and rose to give her flourishing life. And so we husbands should die to ourselves to give our wives everything they need to flourish. My body's falling apart. What hope do I have? In the resurrection, we get new bodies that will never fade. Oh, my family's broken. I feel so lonely and lost. In the death and resurrection of Christ, He creates a new family that will never abandon me. My political candidate just lost the most important election in American history. Jesus died and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God, reigning over all nations and affairs of men. How did all this world begin? Was it evolution? Was it just special creation? You know, the guy who claims to have spoken into existence rose from the dead. You might want to listen to him. All, all of our questions, we start at the resurrection. Where do I go on mission? Whom do I date? What should our church budget be? Who should our elders be? All of these things find their answers first by looking to the resurrection of Christ. It all hinges there. A verifiable historical reality attested to by thousands of people who touched Him, who spoke with Him. This is the marvelous truth your heart longs to be settled on. Behold the beauty of our risen Savior. And through beholding Him, you will be transformed. Your mind will be transformed to comprehend all that's going on around you. Back in verse 2. Matthew used this interesting word, transfigured. I've often wondered what that word transfigured means. Is that something different than simple transformation? Well, the Greek word is the same one that we use for how a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. Metamorphosis. Somehow, Jesus was he changed form right before their eyes. But they still knew it was Jesus. Even though He radiated light, it was so bright, they knew it was Jesus. And the only other places this word is used outside of this story of the Mount of Transfiguration is Romans 12.2 and 2 Corinthians 3.18. Some of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. These reveal the truth of how we will gain understanding to life's realities. Not through a vision, but by comprehending the resurrected Jesus. Paul writes in Romans 12.2, Do not be conformed by the world, but... Be transformed. Same word. Transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind will be transformed when we are in Christ. Transfigured. It will take on a new shape so you can comprehend His truth. And how does it happen? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.18, We all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. Same word, transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is incredible. We, in our humble, lowly, broken existence, are being transformed, transfigured from this ordinary life into the same image of Jesus as He stood on the mountain, full of glory. We will radiate with Him. We will see and understand as He does. And how is this amazing transformation happening? By beholding the resurrected Jesus. 
no matter what doubts or fears, pains or questions you have that you bear today, you can be assured there are wonderful answers for them. And you will only begin to understand by first beholding the glory of our risen Lord Jesus. Start at the cross and the empty tomb and all of the chaos, all of the confusion in your life will begin to make sense. And then when your eyes are open, there's no restriction anymore. Go and tell the world of our resurrected King. Let's pray. God, this seems so foolish. Foolishness to the Gentiles. A stumbling block to the Greek, to the Jews and boredom, as my friend says, to Americans. That Jesus died and rose, like that's the most important thing to know in the universe, like that's the key to understanding all things. And that's what you tell us. That we will understand when we look to the resurrected Jesus. So God, would you help us do that? Help us leave this place today with hearts set on Christ. Looking to Him in all things. Help us find new elders to come alongside of us who have their eyes set on Jesus alone. Who have left Moses and Elijah back and focused their entire heart's attention on Jesus. God, lift our hearts. May we sing to You now with such hearts satisfied in that historical reality. And may we know that that reality will come true for us one day too. Help us to look to Jesus and be transformed into His likeness. Amen.